Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Morality of Everyday Things. This is Ant. And this is Jake. Hi. And today we have another special episode where we're talking to someone who knows something about something. <laughs> <laughs> that is to say that we have another guest today. It is Kieran Setia, professor of philosophy at MIT, who recently, well, actually has written a few books, but most recently wrote Life is Hard. Depending on the order that we release in the seasons, actually, we did a, an episode where we talked a bit about it. And it was off the back of that, we thought, you know what? Let's send him a message, see if he's willing to have a chat. And it turns out that he is. Ooh, thank um, you, Kieran. We're, we're really happy to have you here for that. Yeah, we'll intro him in a second. But uh, everyone, thank you very much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, the most useful thing you can do is please leave a review and share it with a friend. As a reminder, Morality of Everyday Things is an everyday philosophy podcast. So we'll you know approach more questions that you may encounter in your everyday life. And everyone will encounter these ones because they're about meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, Kieran, uh, do you want to tell us, uh, just in your own words, a little bit about yourself, what you're up to now, and maybe a kind of short bio of your history as, a, as an academic philosopher? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm a professor of philosophy. I now teach at MIT. I used to teach at the University of Pittsburgh. And I work in moral philosophy. And I'm really interested in the question how to live and everything connected with the question how to live, which in practice means most of philosophy and its history. And <laughs> I, I sort of shifted from writing earlier on in my academic career about questions like why be moral or how can we know right from wrong to, in my last two books, trying to apply philosophical tools and ideas to everyday life. In my previous book, to the midlife crisis, and in the most recent book, to the hardships of life and the kinds of practical difficulties that most of us, almost all of us, end up facing. So I think my first question is direct response to that. Why do you think, personally, you moved, to kind of use broad sweeping terms, you moved from the kind of more traditional academic approach towards philosophy, more towards an everyday or I suppose what some people might trivialize as self-help. I don't agree with that, but, you know, if someone wants to be pejorative, they may call it that. Or maybe they wouldn't call it that. You know what I mean? Some people mean that in, a, in an earnest, fair way. Some people mean that in like a uh, talking down way. And then my follow up to that is, as an academic, do you find that other academics do look down on kind of a more self-help approach? Both good questions. I mean, the short answer to the first question is that I had a midlife crisis. I, I, <laughs> and I embraced the label immediately. I mean, basically what happened was I, I reached a kind of career point where I had been single-mindedly working on getting a PhD, getting a job, getting tenure, getting promoted. And at a certain point, I was looking at a future in which I would carry on teaching philosophy classes, writing philosophy essays, all of which seemed worthwhile. And yet it felt I had a sense that there was something hollow about it. The thought occurred to me that that was it for the rest of my life. And that was a kind of crisis of meaning. And I thought, okay, well, I'm supposed to work on the question, how should we live? And now I'm facing a puzzling emotional question and a philosophical question. Like, how can you experience a loss of meaning even when you think what you're doing is still worthwhile? How is that possible? And so I, I started thinking about that philosophically and then found that thinking about it philosophically was helpful to me and decided, okay, maybe I should share this with other people. And that's how I came to write my first general audience book, Midlife. Was it that you have always had the perspective that helping others or, or you know, some sort of societal benefit is an end that you'd like to achieve? Is it that you had a shift in how you think one should achieve that or is it that you were you know, interested in something else before and then it was a realization of like, oh, I'd like to help other people that brought that shift? I think I was a bit skeptical before I worked on that book about how much philosophy could help with the kinds of everyday problems that I actually found myself talking about with friends when we were stressing about the question how to live. You know, 
should I switch jobs? Should I have kids or not have kids? Or problems about parenting? Or I, I wasn't sure that philosophy really could make a difference. And I think two things happened to shift that. One was just finding the philosophical reflection I was doing about midlife and the midlife crisis helpful to me. The other was a kind of sense that if there's a mismatch between the methods of philosophy as they exist, a, a certain kind of abstract theoretical argumentative mode, and the project of making life better, there's sort of two reactions to that you could have. One is to say, oh, well, I guess philosophy as it now exists can't play as much of a therapeutic role as it might have played in its history. Or you could say, let's adjust how we think of philosophy and how philosophy uh, is practiced. And so I, I think in my, my more recent work, I've I have a more open-ended and slightly different vision of what philosophy might look like that sort of connects it more with a kind of philosophical self-help project. Something you said in, in the work itself as well, which was, um, uh, well, something I really enjoyed was you sort of said before the era of self-help, when you look back to early philosophy, it, it was kind of dedicated to answering these questions of how to live a good life and how to live a better life. Um, mm. And it was certainly something that appealed to me when I first got into philosophy. And when I was reading your book, I felt like that really resonated because when you actually do study philosophy, a lot of it does feel abstract and a bit removed, but I feel like you do really reunite that kind of philosophical perspective with stuff that feels a bit practical. But do you feel through midlife and then your later work, do you feel like that's the kind of niche you've carved out for yourself? Is that something you see yourself continuing to focus on? I think so, yeah. I'm not sure that what I'll do next is going to be as straightforwardly philosophical self-help, but it's very much in the vein of the name of your podcast. Like, I'm very much interested in how philosophy can reconnect with everyday life. And that might be the problems of living that we're going to talk about today, but it might mean the wider culture or comedy is another thing I'm interested in that I think philosophy might really illuminate and connect with and interact with in interesting ways. So in some way or other, making philosophy less distant from everyday life is the, the larger project. And I suppose there's an interesting distinction there between philosophy looking at like utopia and the ideal and philosophy that is very much tied to like the practical, the pragmatic, and, and in your case, in your most recent work, the sort of hardships of life, which obviously don't exist in an ideal society. Do you see there being sort of use for these kind of utopian models or do you see them sort of being useful in harmony? Like, I guess, like the way that rules kind of works in it when he does his sort of theories of justice? That's a hard question in some ways. I mean, my initial reaction, this, this sort of short answer is, I think that often it isn't useful to begin one's political reflection or reflection on one's own life with an ideal model. It, I think it's often demoralizing and unrealistic and often provides poor guidance. And often, if you're trying to live in imperfect circumstances, aiming for an ideal isn't necessarily the right way to go. Here's an analogy. Like if you're in a situation where you're trying to make bread and you realize you don't have yeast, it might not be that the best thing to do is to try to make bread that is as similar as possible to yeasted bread. You might just think, no, I got to go in a different direction here. And so I think really internalizing the ways in which the difficulties of life or social injustice can change how we should think politically, how we should think ethically is really important. And focusing on utopian ideals can really get in the way of that. On the other hand, there's a kind of hard practical question about whether they play an important motivational role, whether it's inspiring to have a positive vision and it's hard to motivate oneself without some kind of aspiration towards an ideal. That's a, a complicated thing, I think. Mm. What about the, I mean, the first thing I think about in this context is engineering, where you know engineers will use mathematics to create models and no engineer is under the impression that the model is reality or perfectly represents reality. 
but the model is still incredibly helpful for what you're trying to achieve within reality. And it forces you to I don't know, engage with some principles. I had a couple of questions from along this track that I wanted to quickly touch on. Then we should move along with some of the, the questions. First one was a very practical question. How does your um, university feel about your kind of slight change in tack or approach? Or is there actually like in the background some research that you're doing that is more of the kind of stuff that you were doing before? I think MIT as an institution likes the idea of having a kind of wider outreach mission. And I'm at a kind of career stage where I don't need to get tenure. So I don't, my, my professional livelihood doesn't really depend on exactly how much narrowly academic work I do. So I have the freedom to be more flexible. I do still write articles that are more academic and are published in academic journals. And so I, I feel a bit torn a lot of the time between these two writing careers, one of which is inward looking and academic and the other of which really isn't. So the, the answer is I, I just kind of feel like I have an extra job now and I'm, I'm trying to juggle, juggle an extra, an extra thing. Yeah. Practically, I could see as well from uni perspective. I mean, if you look at like Stanford and Huberman or like Uni of Chicago and the Freakonomics guy, like there's a benefit to having public intellectuals at your uni that mm. you know, there's kind of a brand benefit. And the second thing, coming back to this kind of, you know, the term self-help or like more practical philosophy. We mentioned like older forms of philosophy and uh, talking about approaches of like a good life and, and similar. And for most people that will be, you know, the main thing you'll think about there is the ancient Greeks. And you'll be more clued up than us. When you think about the cultural context in which people in ancient Greece were writing their works, you know, talking about the good life, all of these things. It's very easy with the retrospect to think that they kind of had some sense of the kind of grandiose philosophical impact that they were having, you know, hundreds or, or thousands of years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you think that they were writing with that sort of uh, grandiose aspiration in mind and that it was all, you know, big, high, heavy gravitas writing? Or was it actually a lot more like what you might see nowadays, you know, more like this is for everyone to read, everyone to think about. People in the Agora would be like, did you hear Aristotle's got a new book out? <laughs> <laughs> where, where do you think it sat, uh, to the extent that we can know, where do you think it culturally sat for them? That is a really good and I think very difficult question. And really, it's the kind of question where I, I would want to go and ask one of my colleagues who's really an expert in ancient philosophy. My, my sense mm. is that they were grappling with that issue at the time. So there was a mm. real split between Socrates who didn't write, mm -hmm. argued with people in the Agora, was yep. a kind of public intellectual. It was supposed to change lives here and now. And Plato, who sets up an academy that is an educational institution that endures for hundreds and hundreds of years, or Aristotle, who also sets up his own school and is very much a kind of rigorous academic, or you know, on the other side, opposed to Plato and his vision of Socrates' legacy, you find one of my heroes, Diogenes the Cynic, uh, who classic. also didn't write, or he wrote, but none of his writing survives. And what we know about Diogenes the Cynic is just these anecdotes of him living in a barrel on the streets, adopting a, the kind of mantle of poverty and then taking the piss out of everyone. So, so I think there was a, a, a real question at the time whether philosophy was supposed to be urgently life-transforming or a more academic founding of an intellectual institution that would then extend into the further future and build human knowledge. So I think that it wasn't really clear what form it was exactly going to take. Okay. If we can be so, uh, you know, invite you to be so grandiose, do you hope that your books will be read hundreds of years from now? I 
so there's a chapter in, in Life is Hard about hope where I talk about the idea that to hope for something, you have to think it's at least possible. Mm. And that's, it seems so, it's not, and not just think it's possible, but treat it as a live possibility, something that would affect your planning or decision making. And the truth is, it seems like I can't rule it out, but it's so remote that it in no way is a live possibility that informs any of my decision making, thinking, or even my my dream life, you know. It's well, a, so the now that you're is, on I our podcast, think... who knows? <laughs> <laughs> this could be the breakthrough moment. Yeah, this podcast will no doubt survive and be listened to <laughs> years from now. That will be my my legacy. No, so I think I don't really have that hope. I would be happy if you know some people read it and it does something positive for people's sense of the value of philosophy. Well, there's at least two people here. Okay, we've actually ended up kind of. Yeah, listeners sort of realize this. We we had a, a sort of scripted set of questions that we have completely ignored. Uh, this is <laughs> yeah. this has been a really good intro. Now's the time. Now's the time. Okay. So we originally wanted to kick off by well, you did already tell us your story, which is great, and we we wanted to sort of segue into how you came to write Life is Hard, which was the book that introduced you to us. Although you told us about Midlife, which was the book preceding that, and then COVID, I believe, was the context in which Life is Hard. That was when you created that. So I suppose if we if we jump forward a little bit and say, if you had to summarize Life is Hard in a few key messages, and you can tell us sort of. I guess, why you wrote it in the same answer. How would you sort of summarize, nay, sell the book to our listeners? Okay, okay. Well, this, yeah, the elevator pitch. I mean, we should I, clarify, we invited Kieran on. This is not a book selling. Yes, thing. absolutely. Yeah. So this is totally, <laughs> just in case anyone's um, like, oh but, God, it's an ad. <laughs> but no, it's, I mean, it came out of my experience with chronic pain. So since I was about 27, I've experienced chronic pelvic pain, which is one of these conditions where there isn't really a diagnosis. The diagnosis is just a name for the symptom and it's not very well understood and there isn't really a reliable treatment. And so I wanted to write about that and about the question it poses when you give up on the idea Idea that there's going to be a cure, namely, okay, how am I going to live a good enough life in a context where being pain-free is not a likely possibility? But I didn't want to write a whole book about myself or about my individual experience. So really, I wanted to use the experience of living with chronic pain as a kind of instance of this wider question, what would a philosophical approach to the good life look like if it never lost touch with the fact that life is hard? And I mean, it's hard to summarize the book in a few key messages in part because I don't think there is a single key to Jacob's why he wrote the book I, and not an essay. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And it's, it's why it's structured the way it is. It has kind of chapters devoted to particular hardships where the thought mm. is the way to figure out how to deal with this is to pay close attention to what's distinctive of the experience of loneliness or grief or whatever it might be. I do think there are sort of big picture ideas. One is the kind of distinction between being or feeling happy as a state of mind and living well as a kind of engagement with reality. And that it's engagement with reality. It's living in the world as it is, engaging with other people as they are, engaging with reality that should be the goal of self-help, that, that that's what we should be aiming at. And that doing that requires acknowledgement of and attention to the world as it really is. That, I suppose, is the, the kind of key thought. And then the hope is that philosophy can attentively describe different kinds of hardships in ways that orient us towards them and help us come to terms with them. Just, I mean, not to immediately go off on a tangent, having just got us back on track, mm. but this, um, it recalls to me sort of practices like meditation. I don't recall you talking about that much in the book, but is that something you're interested in? And is that something you think is relevant practice to what you're describing? Or, or is it less about this sort of meditation state and more just about how you think about things? I don't know if that was a very clear question, but maybe you see where I'm going with that. 
No, it's interesting. I mean, I do think there's a role for meditation that connects with some of the things I talk about in the book about living in the present or kind of attentiveness to what's happening now that enables you to appreciate the value of the process of what you're engaged in and not be distracted by anxieties about the future. And so I, I think that that is a kind of central strategy for living in some of the ways that I want to articulate in the book. And then I think there's a kind of a, a larger tricky question, which is exactly how far the kind of ideal of attention that informs my philosophical thinking, how exactly that relates to the Buddhist tradition. And there, I think the short answer is it's complicated and I don't have <laughs> a, a quick pithy statement on that. Mm. I think it's also interesting. I do recall specifically you're, you're saying that a sense of acceptance and interacting with life despite its hardships and living well, isn't to say that we shouldn't have goals or shouldn't, you know, strive for things. And I often think when I think about philosophies that influence me, I kind of think that these two competing forces are generally like kind of a sense of like contentedness, learning to be happy with what you have. And then also ambition, like, you know, some some sort of, he's kind of like the, <laughs> a friend of ours described him as the, uh, proto incel, <laughs> Nietzsche, but like the kind of the Nietzschean kind of like, you know, if you're, I don't know, for example, if you feel distressed about something, sometimes that can also be a sign like, hey, I should do something about it, right? And finding that balance between that, those two is very hard. In your view, not necessarily in the context of, of adversity, although to some extent, like, let's say adversity that isn't insurmountable. I mean, you know, in the context of like a pain that you can't avoid, or yeah, if you lose your legs, it's like, okay, I need to, this is obviously something I need to learn to accept. But generally, you know, most of the hardships that we endure are, are some way intertwined with our agency. How do you think about striking that balance between acceptance, contentedness, or the kind of agency of like, I, you know, must strive to change this thing? I think that a first step is to recognize the reality of that tension, not to pretend that there isn't a kind of constant renegotiation in which one has to figure out what do I accept? What do I fight against? I This relates, I think, to something I struggle with myself in the chapter on hope in the book. So I, mm. even though the chapters are organized by human hardships, I have a chapter on hope, which is a funny thing to list as, yeah. as, as, a, as one of the hardships of life. Although I don't know if Ted Lasso is big in the UK, but there, there is it this is, yeah. slogan that Jake actually the, references the hope that kills you. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, the hope I think, that kills you. Exactly. One way to, to think about this is that there's the tendency that many of us have to oscillate between hope and despair, to think, to feel either- Typical Wednesday. You know, there's, <laughs> yeah, right. There's, there's good news about the climate. So, okay, I'm now it's hopeful. Be all right. <laughs> or bad, bad news, now we despair. I think a crucial aspect of readjusting one's relationship to hope is to think, it's not black and white. I shouldn't be thinking hope or despair. The question is always, what should I hope for? So just thinking, okay, there's almost always in any circumstance something to hope for. And using that as a lever to orient oneself in a way that's more productive seems really helpful to me. So just to take an example from my own life, I used to describe coming to terms with chronic pain as giving up hope, that I stopped hoping for a cure. But I realized in, in retrospect, that's a misdescription. It wasn't that I gave up hope. I switched what I was hoping for. I stopped hoping for a cure and started hoping for a way to live a good life while having this background condition and have it not prevent me from you know, flourishing as much as possible. So I think that shift of realizing, look, accepting something as unchangeable involves not giving up hope, but shifting the object of hope. And that the question of hope is always where to direct it, not yes or no, hope or despair. That I think is a productive way to 
manage the kind of tension that you were talking about. Interesting. So, so directing the agency, maybe not in the same channel, but in some other way. One of the questions we had down was, can philosophy actually help us deal with hardship? And I think pain is such an interesting example because it is so physical. It, I need drugs. Yeah, it's, it's something yes, you can't yeah. really ignore. And I think people might think, oh, you know, philosophy could help me sort of disentangle a certain way of looking at a problem. But pain, I suppose, well, I'm sure you will say it is a function of how you look at it. It's obviously very immediate when you feel it. Yes, I suppose if your partner was giving birth, you wouldn't be like, don't worry, I've got Kieran yeah. with me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and, and your experiences personally, I think, give quite a lot of credence then to the fact that you, you say that it actually can help. If I could ask in a sort of practical way, when, when you are in those sort of moments of experiencing like unpleasant pain, how do you find philosophy helpful? Or if not philosophy, what do you find so helpful to get you through those particular moments? I found it helpful in part just to articulate why pain is bad, why it's bad. And there's a certain kind of unintelligibility initially to the extent to which chronic pain. So mine is not sort of debilitating. I can go about my life. It's not that I'm sort of, it screws up sleep badly sometimes, but that's the worst aspect of it. So there's a kind of puzzle. Okay, why is this disturbing my life so much? And I think it's possible to articulate the way in which pain alters your relationship to your body. Normally we experience the world as it were transparently through our bodies. But when you're in pain all the time, even if it's a, a niggling minor pain, your attention is constantly dragged back to your body and you're in capacity to engage transparently with other people or with the world around you is impeded. There's also kind of temporality to pain that's very challenging, the sense that it, it's not just that it hurts right now, but that it generates an anticipate and kind of anxious anticipation that it's not going away and that that shadow over the future is a big part of why pain is difficult. And to some extent, I think just articulating the experience using the tools of phenomenology, the philosophical reflection on, on lived experience, helps to make it intelligible. And the intelligibility takes the edge off it in a way. It also allows you to communicate with other people, to connect in a way that overcomes some of the loneliness of pain, which I think applies to most forms of human suffering. Usually, loneliness and isolation are concomitant with human suffering in most of its forms. But then I think there are also practical things. So, so the more you, you start to recognize that the temporal distortions of pain, the sense that when you're in chronic or extended pain, you lose the capacity to imagine yourself into a pain-free future or to really remember what it was like being pain-free and that that's what's making it so difficult. I think recognizing that taking it roughly taking it one day at a time. It got another TV reference, the Kimmy Schmidt rule, that you, you can stand anything mm. for 10 seconds. That there's some real wisdom in that. There's a, a <sighs> deep philosophical point to the to the recognition that I, I don't uh, know the context of that quote, but I mean, oh, I can think of many Kimmy things. Schmidt, I maybe do Kimmy for Schmidt 10 is seconds. not such a big show in the UK. Um, I've seen it on Netflix, as in saw the title, but I never watched it. But I can think of a lot of things I wouldn't want to do for ten seconds. I'd actually think that which, that is it's an just, example of yeah. like ten seconds can be a really long time. Yeah, it's like the, yeah, I think the hot, hot stove rule. Sorry, Kieran. Yeah, no, so yeah, you can stand anything might be an exaggeration, and ten seconds seems like a to be honest, quite a short time frame like you know let's can we at least go for a day or you know a, a week or something but um but yeah i do think that thinking about why pain is bad helps to make sense of why one's relationship to time is such a crucial part of managing it and that is a, a sense in which i've found philosophical reflection on pain practically useful myself mm. Mm. there's a word i remember you using in the book and we discussed in the episode we did on pain already is um that pain is finkish as well, which I, mm. I thought to be like 
powerfully true when I was thinking about it is that when you're in pain, the one thing you can think of is how great it will feel not to be in pain. But then obviously, as soon as you're not in pain, it's not necessarily that you have this sort of blissful relief. You just kind of go back to normal, which in in some ways is really bittersweet. That wasn't really a question, but... Yeah, it's no, I think it is very hard. I feel like to really appreciate being pain-free, even in small ways, I always have this. Every time I wake up with a cold and I'm like difficulty breathing and I'm like congested, I think, man, every day I don't have a cold, I should be like, Yay. This is amazing. <laughs> I can breathe normally. It's fantastic. I actually have but had that exact same feeling. It's <laughs> incredibly like, How do hard I survive to appreciate like this? it? Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Mm. Okay. Very interesting. To bring it again back to the, the script. So we mentioned one of the chapters was in Hope. And we had already done a, an episode actually around pain. We may either release it before or after this. Probably before since we now mention it. As part of the book, you pick seven forms of suffering. So can you tell us a little bit about why you chose those seven? Is it a comprehensive list or just a, an important selection or just a demonstrative selection to give people a sense of that structure? What are the seven sufferings? Why did you pick those? Why seven? Is it, is it seven because it's like the seven deadly sins? It's like the seven <laughs> hardships of human life? I like that. It, it wasn't quite quite so conscious. I mean, yeah, it's an infirmity, loneliness, grief, failure, injustice, absurdity, and then it ends with, with hope. And Jay, that's so I, weird. It sounds so much like your life. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, it 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 wasn't that I thought that was a comprehensive list. And there were some topics that I thought about discussing and then cut. So at one point there was a discussion of the challenges of parenthood. And then I thought, you know, having a chapter on parenthood, while it might be useful. Listing parenthood as one of the hardships of human life <laughs> alongside grief and loneliness. I felt like that might be going a bit too far. So when, so when your child some, reads some, this, it's like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Among the nightmares that have beset me, parenthood is number, number six. Um, so I, 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 I kind of thought about things else, other things I might include. I mean, the way- Also like bothers your sleep, same as chronic pain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the way it's structured is, the, the thought is, we sort of begin with the body, with pain, in its physical form and physical disability. And then we extend out to social connection and loneliness and love and loss and grief. And then- Seen a little bit of uh, of the uh, platonic dialogue around love. I like it. Yes, yep. Yeah. And then and then there's a kind of, kind of one social position and the hardships of failure. And then injustice and the one's responsibility to society as a whole and then absurdity in the cosmos. So the thought is, although it's not- exhaustive, there is a kind of pattern in which we extend our, our lens gets wider and wider and mm. wider. Because and there's a out. through line too, in that I think lots of these things are connected. So I, you know, one of the ideas is that when we think about loneliness, part of what we're thinking about is love and human connection and the value of other human beings. And that that actually relates to reflection on justice and what we owe to other people. So there's a kind of pattern to the organization, but no, it's not really uh, it, you know, I'm sure life is able to throw up so many more difficult things than you anticipated that I, I haven't covered them all. Just really quickly, thinking about that zooming into zooming out, thinking about your use of the word finkish. One thing that strikes me is that it kind of swaps from finkish to whatever the opposite would be in that, like, when I think about those, like the zoomed in on the body, it's all, you know, absence of the thing is, is what you want, right? Mm -hmm. But then when I kind of zoom out more and we think about loneliness or absurdity, meaning it flips around to the opposite where it's absence of the thing is the pain. Interesting. Do you think that, that that's, really do you think that's, yeah. 
coincidental. Uh, I've copyrighted that idea. Don't put it in your next book. <laughs> Do you think no, that it's, is it coincidental that in zooming out, that dynamic has flipped? That's very interesting. I mean, I'm trying to think that through on the fly. I think that's definitely true in terms of loneliness and grief, that the the thing that we crave is a certain kind of connection. It's the absence of it that is the pain. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't have this finkish sense that we we can't appreciate the good thing because when the good thing is there, it's there. And we really can, you know, we can value it in a way that the, the good thing in in being pain-free is sort of negative and hard to fully appreciate. I wonder, I mean, one question to think about if we wanted to pursue this this line would be how that relates to justice, whether we should think about justice primarily in terms of getting rid of a bad thing, namely injustice, or mm, in terms what, of as a positive that's aspiring to an ideal. Yeah. Well, that's, mm. that's part of it, right? Where like, you know, when we think of this is one of the, the perhaps it's, it's a, a factor of the fact of the time that we are all brought up in and uh, our subjective lens. But, you know, individualism is important. And I think a lot of part of the part of the issue that people have with, say, a, an ancient Greek idea of like a good life is that it's very prescriptive. Mm. It's very paternalistic sort of in a way, right? Platonic model of society where yeah, like no you, parents. you must be yeah. this way. I mean, I mean yeah. if you think about Plato's, uh, Plato's, you know, Republic, it's mm. it's entirely prescriptive. It, it's it's not a free democracy <laughs> at all. One of three roles. Uh, it's like <laughs> world. We should be Sparta. Um, <laughs> so it's it's interesting in that context. Reflecting what you said, I think of justice as more a lack of injustice. And then to say, oh, that, you know, there are things that you should do is more that kind of Greek ideal of virtue, the good life. Whereas when we think about it now, it's more, you know, law systems exist to correct injustices, not to enforce justices, right? Like no one, uh, very few people are, are saying that there should be rules to enforce justice as opposed to remove injustice. We should come back to justice. Oh, it's a whole other episode. We, yeah, we have, we've carved out a special place for that. The seven forms of suffering are really interesting. What we wanted to do with the rest of the time we have on this particular part was zoom in on the absurd and also, I guess, more broadly, this question of the meaning of life. Also, Kieran, could you appreciate with me how absurd the way that Jake says absurd is? I say, I swear I said the same thing. It is absurd. absurd. Yeah, I, I yeah. never, it's, <laughs> I, I'm tempted to imitate it from now on. It's my new, uh, <laughs> Truly, cool it be pronunciation. Like the- I like it. We should go with it. <laughs> you say it without the Z, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's because Jake's Jake's dad is uh, South African, uh, and it's he, uh, he's not got a strong accent, but it's one of the things that your dad definitely says. <laughs> something I picked up. Yeah, I, wait, absurd, absurd. Abs- we did. We had absurd, absurd. This is a repetition of the joke we had in the Camu episode where. It's, it's not I a repetition. It is, it's not a joke. I just, I just haven't changed the way I say yeah. it. Um, you're, you're being your authentic <laughs> self and we appreciate that, Thanks, Jake. man. I appreciate um, that too. Guys, do you mind if I really quickly grab water? Yeah, do you want some wine? Yeah, I've got some. Oh, Ooh, lovely. I wanted some of that fancy water that tastes like mangoes, but okay, I'll take this. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, and, and perfection. Forgive my continued mispronunciation. Um, one thing we always like to do in this, in, in the show, is kind of define terms before we get into discussing them. Mm. Uh, and we have done an episode on the absurd already um but how how do you understand it? i know you you dedicate a whole chapter to it how how, how do you understand it and and if you were to just kind of like define and explain it for our for our listeners um what would you say so i i think of uh, the problem of absurdity as a problem about the lack of meaning that mm-hmm. life doesn't have a meaning mm-hmm. and so it really piggybacks on the interpretation of the meaning of life and the idea there is I think we can make sense of the idea that life might have meaning, not the way a sentence has meaning or not a purpose like uh, a cog in a machine, but Mm -hmm. life could have meaning the way a work of art has meaning in the sense that there's an interpretation of it, a kind of truth that describes and makes sense of it that orients us towards it and tells us how to feel about it. And so if that's what it would take for life to have a meaning, a truth about 
human life and how it fits into the universe that tells us, yeah, here's how to, to think about it and here's how to feel about it. Then the idea of absurdity would be what Camus calls the unreasonable silence of the world. The idea that when you describe human life, it's not that you should feel bad about it. It's that there's nothing to say that tells you how to make sense of it or how to feel about it. You're just in the void. So just to quickly touch on uh, the analogy you gave there of art, right? Uh, and you said art has meaning and you, you talked about the context of uh, what it imparts. Does that mean that the, the, the way that you think about meaning in, in answer to the, um, the, sorry, what was the term? The silence of the void? Um, you know, I, I used to play World of Warcraft. That would be a great name for a dagger or something like that. <laughs> well, the silence of the void. <laughs> yeah, silence of the void. One nerd. Uh, but th does that does nerd. that make does that make that that meaning inherently social? Because um, obviously, the meaning that art has. I mean, to to, to kind of rephrase that into a different question, could you say that art has meaning in a universe where there is only one person? I mean, I think it it, it might be social in the sense that we're looking for a truth that tells us how we should feel. So if you're describing a work of art, giving a, a kind of overall interpretation, you're trying to say something about it uh, that, would, that should make sense of it to any reader and tell any reader, you know, is this a tragedy, a comedy? Is this something to, is the ending something to celebrate or something to despair over? So in that sense, I think it has, it reaches beyond the individual. I think when we talk about the meaning of life, it also reaches beyond the individual because the way I'm thinking about it, the question is about the meaning of human life as a whole. So it's not, it's different from the question, am I having a meaningful life? What's up with me? It's the question is something like, when I look at all of us and human existence in this vast, different meaning cosmos, big M. yeah, how should I feel about that? And so it's a question about human society and human history and in that sense i think also social right so i think in the context of the episode that we did one of the things we said was that you know when you think about human striving we have to uh, you think of the crusaders we have to go and fight these heathens because of whatever or you think of more recent decades or at least centuries we have to free these people and give them democracy and then when you think in the context of yeah you know in a billion years humans probably won't exist it's kind of hard to understand why that is necessary right it's ultimately all for nothing it's so interesting that you draw that distinction. I remember thinking that when I read the book that like, I suppose people care equally, if not more actually about the sort of initial question of whether their own individual life is meaningful, but also this sense of human life as a whole having meaning. So I guess they have quite different answers. And, and, and I mean, I suppose we want to talk about both. And on the first one, on this sense of like individual life being meaningful, uh, one thing I remember you saying was about there being sort of good enough lives rather than the ideal life. Um, so that was something uh, I, I really wanted to ask That's you That's often about. how I describe your life, Jake. <laughs> Adequate. <laughs> I try. I try. It's just like when they're back to you, used to mark your stuff at uni. <laughs> A for acceptable. I remember I once handed in an essay at uni. The, the title was briefly described, blah, 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 blah. I remember the feedback I got back was, um, you took the title very literally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with a few sentence reply. So if we start with this sort of first question of whether your own individual life is meaningful, how does one approach that? But also, and sorry for layering so many questions here, I noticed you were saying about the way that people feel about their life, like particular reference to that word feel as opposed to think by contrast. Could you sort of expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I think of the question of whether an individual life is meaningful as being not really 
importantly different from the question whether it's a good life, whether you're living well. So in a way, going back to the distinction I made a, a while back, just between feeling happy and living as you should, living in a way that treats yourself and other people as they should be treated, at least to the extent that you can. I'm thinking of a meaningful life as as that. It's a, a life of- The latter. Yeah, the latter. Yeah, exactly. De- dealing with the, the hardships of life you know, reasonably well and managing to find enough things in your life worth valuing, worth wanting, worth affirming. And so I, I think whether people do that depends on how things work out for them. It can vary from person to person. Whereas I think of the question of you know the meaning of life, you know, capital M, capital L, as a <laughs> question both about how to think and how to feel about human life as a whole. So it, it's the question is, is there a description of human when we try to describe human life, is there a description that orients us towards it and tells us you know, whether to affirm human existence or to regret human existence or feel ambivalent about human existence. And you know, there is this sense, I think the one of you mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, eventually humanity will go extinct. So why does it all matter? Why does anything really matter? But I actually think if if we look at even a kind of finite human history and imagine humanity going extinct, I think there are better and worse ways for that to happen about which we should feel differently. So if what happens is climate crisis induces civil war and we all destroy ourselves, that we should feel pretty bad about that way of going extinct. <laughs> Whereas if what happens is we kind of get through it and evolve towards justice, and then you know eventually humanity goes extinct, but it, we've sort of made genuine progress towards a more just future, then I think we should feel differently. There'll be a way of telling the story of human life that should enable us to be more accepting of it. So in that sense, I think it, it really is possible for the question of the meaning of life to have an answer. And the answer will be both about how to think about human life and about how we should feel about it. But it sounds like those the the answer is really focused around the denial of death and this kind of conception of, as you were saying before, hope as a possibility of extending that, of avoiding that ending. I mean, what if, you know, it phrase it another way. What if we know that in 200 years a meteor is going to hit this planet and every planet in you know in the universe i don't know the universe is going to explode every planet that elon musk could reasonably have called yeah (laughs) Yeah, no no, there's zero i mean does that then change does you know if we have that finitude and the finitude is not in our control because it still sounds a little bit like oh the justice is determined by what could have been that we've missed out on but if we're saying there is no could have been does that change the view or or is your angle here just that no one would be around to tell the story yeah, I mean, like, you know, there could be a universe where humans don't exist at all, ever. Not not just like for a, they stop existing, is that they never existed. And so the concept of like, oh, it was more just, it's like, well, what is more just? Just is something we've made up and, you know, at this point we don't exist anymore or we could well have never existed. The universe could exist without life. It just is. Mm. I mean, it sounds strange and pointless, but that's because we're kind of myopic and focused on ourselves. So in that context where you said more just was the bit that I was basically focused on there, like more just is a human concept, an existence. We're talking about an existence with no humans. So why does that matter? Well, I think if a question is, you know, does human life have meaning, then it's it's only going to be a question that has application. If we're looking at universes in which, in worlds in which there is human life. True. If there isn't, then there isn't that question. We could ask, you know, how, how should we feel about a universe vo- void of sentient life? But you're right, it wouldn't be a particularly, it would not be an urgent question for people Mm -hmm. in that world because there wouldn't be any people. But even (laughs) even if we just focus on the, 
on human life, if we think about the, the future where the meteor hits and human life ends, even there, I think there are different ways the, the, last, the next 200 years could go. And I think we really should care about how it goes. And we should feel very differently about human life, depending on whether we manage to handle this impending catastrophe with grace mm. or whether we're, we're unable to, to um, support one another through the, the inevitable extinction. So even there, I think it, it really does matter how we cope with yeah. the, the kind of cataclysm. I think reflecting on it and uh, like maybe taking an individual level, like an analogy that kind of makes me realize it's a, a wrong point I made is, um, I guess if you imagine, I don't know, if you imagine a person dying, right? Knowing that the person, every person's going to die, right? Mm. Knowing the person is going to die doesn't mean that like them dying at 90, surrounded by their loved ones, you know, the kind of movie, goodbye, <laughs> <laughs> uh, versus stabbed in their 30s. Like, you know, you don't say, well, they were going to die anyway, right? Like, we do have a sense that one of those was a better life. Yeah. And I, so I suppose it's, it's kind of that zoomed out to a human level. Is yeah. that kind of right, right. a fair analogy? I, I mean, the difference is that humanity as such doesn't exactly have a lifespan, a kind of normal lifespan the way humans do. But I think there's a similar picture in which there's certain kinds of deaths of individuals that we, we should accept. We should not rail against them. It's sad. And there's something regrettable, but it, it's not like someone and there's still you know, a life dying that in a, we can think about being terrible done well. just way or yeah. Mm. Interesting. You mentioned denial of death earlier, which totally reminded me of the podcast we both listened to about mm. Ernest Becker. Ernest Becker, yeah. And I'm just trying to think how to how to sort of fit this in neatly into the conversation we're having. I guess just for the for the sake of listeners, Kieran, you you may well be familiar, but if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, Becker's point is that you know religion was always something that sort of supplied meaning, so people didn't have to worry about death because religion provided an afterlife. And then as religion has kind of waned in its influence, we've replaced it with culture. So people have sought to like leave legacies by being legendary sports people or creating yeah. masterpieces of architecture. Or Basically, the, well, I think the core of his point is that like we have a biological self and a symbolic self, mm. and the symbolic self is one that we can try and build mm -hmm. to be immortal. I mean, like you know, I still know Caesar. Like people who are alive now, like Leonardo DiCaprio, mm -hmm. he is just a, a set of cultural symbols to me. I've never met him. I don't know the biological creature that is Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. And actually, the biological creature is probably pretty divorced from the symbolic, you know, <laughs> collection of symbols that I know of as him. So in some sense, you know, if he died, he would be just as alive to me as he was before. It's not mm. in a literal biological sense. But how are you trying to tie this to? Well, I was just thinking of this, this denial of death as a kind of drive for meaning. Uh, I mean, mm. Becker's conclusion, it wasn't entirely clear to me, but it seemed sort of like, uh, this is all just denial, right? Mm. Everything we do, everything we sort of seek to create in terms of meaning is is just because we're sort of afraid of death. Again, and I'm so still, likewise, you're getting a sense of that for the, the entire human yeah, project. I'm still, yeah, I'm still trying to grapple with that as a question, but when we're talking about the sort of meaning of life uh, in a sort of bigger human sense, that's, that's what I'm trying to drive towards is, um, is, yeah, we were talking about the asteroid. If everything is ultimately pointless or if an individual life is, is kind of pointless, is it? So if you're guaranteed to have no legacy, if you're, for example, guaranteed to, to die as the, you know, you're, you know assuredly that mm. no matter what you do, Say, for example, you're a Jewish in, in Nazi Germany and you know 100% that the Nazis will, will wipe out your cultural history. You're like, they will make sure that you do not get credit for anything you did. Um, and so your denial of death is entirely itself denied. <laughs> Maybe. I suppose I'm asking why, indirectly I'm asking why we care so much about the meaning of life anyway. And whether or not you sort of agree with this, this sort of premise that the denial of death is kind of what drives us to try and create meaning in our life because we're just sort of failing to embrace the fact that it's transient. I took a long way to, <laughs> a long no, no, build up to it, that question. I but. think it's a great question. I mean, I, I'm very influenced by um, the theologian John Bowker, who has a book called The Meanings of Death. And one of the things he argues there is that the idea of religion 
as providing consolation by telling us that we're individually immortal is sort of skewed. So his, his picture is actually acceptance of our mortality is part of many religious traditions. The reason we need an afterlife or we need this sort of metaphysical consolation often has more to do with justice. So that the sense that what's really unacceptable is not that I will die, but that the virtuous will have terrible lives and the unjust may prosper. And that the role of an afterlife or of a kind of metaphysical story on which it's sort of an illusion that the unjust are prospering, the role of it is to sort of balance the moral ledger. And so on that way of thinking about it, it's less about fear of death and more about desire for justice, even in religious traditions. And so the way I'm thinking about it, it's true that when you shift from religious ways of thinking to secular ways of thinking, there's certain kinds of assurance of justice that are not going to be available. But my thought is, yeah, well, the closest we can get to a kind of transcendental assurance of justice in a secular world is just the actual de facto, arduous, imperfect progress towards justice, you know, in, insofar as it, it can be brought about. So, so I kind of think that, that there's a different way of looking at the religious tradition on which it's less about a, a kind of denial of death and more about a desire for justice. And that, I think, makes it look more respectable and less like an avoidance to try to carry that over into a kind of secular relationship to, to meaning. That's extremely interesting. interesting. And, I, and I suppose, actually, I mean, if you were to extend that to the secular tradition, you could say the legacy that you leave, assuming there is a sort of world in which truth will out, does kind of permit for, for justice to be carried out even after your death. I mean, I'm, I'm, history is written by the victors. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But uh, uh, life, isn't, life is not necessarily. You, you sort of think of things being unraveled yeah. even after your death, and that affects your legacy. And even though you're dead, the, your legacy sort of lives on. I'm, I'm, mm. For some reason, the only thing I can think of right now is Jimmy Savile. But, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's sort of cases of sort of truth being revealed later on. And, and maybe in the absence of an afterlife, you at least have a sense that your legacy and your reputation, yep. to the extent that lives on after you die maybe there is some sort of rebalancing of justice there it's yeah. a very interesting way of looking at it before we get too much into justice one thing yeah. i wanted to touch on friendship you had uh, quite an interesting uh, perspective on friendship and you particularly in the book contrasted it with a kind of aristotelian perspective on friendship could you very quickly outline your perspective there and then i have a couple of questions around it sure yes i mean aristotle is, is an important figure in the philosophy of friendship because he makes it central to his ethical thinking. But he tends to think of friendship, and Plato is like this too, as sort of meritocratic, that desire is for the good. And so eros, or love for friends, has to be love for friends who are in some way good. And I think a kind of important shift in thinking about friendship and love that is also a shift in how we think about the value of human life is the shift from thinking in order to earn, to be loved or to be deserving of love, you have to earn it by having certain kinds of virtues or positive qualities to a vision on which everyone, every human being, just in virtue of being a human being, is worthy of love. And that it's that value, that the value that every human being has that we recognize in love. But we recognize it in a different way than we do in moral respect, the kind of basic moral respect that everyone deserves. But it's the same value that we're recognizing. And so I think there's a kind of continuity there between respect and love. I think it's practically important. I find that very interesting. I'm, I'm just, I'm not sure. Part of the reason I thought it was so, I wanted to discuss it is because I'm just not sure if I buy into it. Because, you know, maybe it's, you know, we did a little bit of economics way back when, and maybe this it's will just become abundantly clear in yeah, the question that's yeah. about to ask. But uh, it's <laughs> let's focus in on a few parts of it. I mean, I mean, first of all, you mentioned that everybody is worthy of love, right? 
Is that to say that you have to be friends with everybody? No, I mean, worthy means it will be appropriate to love them. It doesn't mean you're required to love them. Okay, but what happens when nobody wants to be friends with somebody? That's sort of the problem of loneliness is the challenge is that your value isn't being realized. So there's a kind of worthiness of love that's kind of value in you that cries out for a certain kind of recognition. Is that an expression of the fact that maybe they are not both to take like a philosophical, but then also a self-help approach? Might the problem then be that like, okay, well, actually maybe... It's not that everyone is inherently worthy of friendship. Maybe, you know, you're difficult and you should kind of maybe from a self-help perspective, think about that, work on that. And it's funny as well, because again, self-help perspective, I think one of the most difficult things that some people can sometimes struggle with is we all have seen people in our own lives where like they are burdened by friends that they may have inherited at some point in their life, you know, through circumstance of, you know, proximity largely. Look but at then us now, Kieran. Look at us now. Look at us now. Yeah. Look at, look at Jake dealing with this. But then, you know, the kind of overarching feeling I had of, of reading that was like, it kind of seems to suggest that I need to be friends with everyone and I kind of need to take on everyone's problems. And, you know, the love of friendship is more important than the fact that it's uh, beneficial to both. But I actually feel like one of the difficult things for a lot of people to, sometimes it sounds callous, but I don't think it's callous. I just think it's a, a, an accurate reflection of, of how like healthy relationships function. The friendship should be beneficial to both parties, right? In some way. And that's not to say like, I need to gain things. That's also talking in terms of like, I need to enjoy the friendship more than it drains me, right? And from what I said before, the statement like everyone is worthy of friendship. If someone has no one willing to be friends with them, how are those two statements true at the same time? I'm going to guess there's a semantic point going on here and it's it's about how you're sort of defining worthy in this kind yeah, of like yeah. hierarchy that you apply, Kieran. But I'll... I'll but then it's also, it's also yeah. worthy as like an objective abstract concept, but we're also talking about real world. We're talking about friends. Right? Yeah. Well, maybe it also helps to distinguish it between the idea that everyone is worthy of love and mm. the question of how exactly what kind of relationships you should or shouldn't have with people. So right. I think a commonplace occurrence for people is there's someone with whom they, in, a, in their family, they just cannot be around. But I don't think they, it will be a mistake to continue loving them. Sometimes the right approach to someone is to say, yeah, we don't spend time together. We don't see each other anymore. But it doesn't mean that it will be a mistake then to continue having a kind of deep concern for that person. So another kind of case that is like this is when you have a friendship and someone becomes a, a kind of impossible to deal with. And you might think, yeah, I'm not going to hang out with them anymore. But it, it wouldn't be a mistake to still care about them more than you care about a random stranger. In fact, the form that that care might take is really hoping that they sort it out uh, mm -hmm. in a way that if there's some other random schmuck who's <laughs> also being I'm an asshole, you're like, well, that's got nothing to do with me. And the, the difference is that the friend who's now an asshole, even though you avoid them, you kind of hope, it would be appropriate to hope that they right. turn it around in a way that it would be weird to get invested in that way in a, in a stranger. Um, but then so how, I, do we, how do we form friendship then? Because it makes it all sound kind of, it all makes sense from the point where you have friends already, but then how do we choose new friends? And basically we can never get rid of friends. No, no. I mean, I, you can definitely end friendships. I, I'm not suggesting that everyone you have, as I said, I'm not suggesting you have to be friends with everyone or that you can't end friendships. And right. even the idea that everyone is worthy of love doesn't mean you have to love everyone. It would be perfectly appropriate for love to be selective. The point is, there's no one it would be a mistake to love. There's no one who is inherently unlovable, is the thought. Whether in fact people love them depends on, you know, on a lot of kind of chance and circumstance. But part of the, the kind of positive suggestion, and this is something that I think the philosophical picture I'm proposing points towards, but it's also backed up by the psychology, is that once you see love as a kind of optional appreciation of someone's value that's continuous with the kind of value that you have to at least respect. You have to at least treat them as having 
some kind of value you should not interfere with. You can start to see a continuity between even small moments of mutual acknowledgement, mutual recognition, mutual affirmation, and deeper friendship. So you know, one of the interesting results about loneliness that social psychologists point to is that to a surprising degree, even very small moments of interstitial interaction in which you talk to a stranger and they acknowledge your existence and are polite to you, already mm -hmm. begin to mitigate the sense of loneliness, the sense of just not having a kind of social reality. I think- I remember hearing about that during COVID. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it, it, one of the big challenges of COVID is that we've lost a lot of apparently unimportant interstitial social interaction, and we might underestimate how big a deal that is for us. Yeah, our we sense forget that we're of, just human brains and monkey bodies. Yeah. Well, that was a good, <laughs> I didn't expect that sentence to end it. <laughs> That's the punchline. <laughs> yeah. Cool. We I should had, wrap this episode. I had one question, which I think will segue into the next one, but this last one, and then we'll, we'll wrap and move on to justice. There's a quote that I believe was from yourself, Kieran, but it could have been your interviewer in an interview that we watched, Yabba Dabba Doo, where you said, um, uh, if you want a happy life, spend time with friends. If you want a meaningful life, spend time with family. I can't remember if that was you or the interview. But no, no, the, I think that was him. I think it was you and, and, and you guys discussed it a bit. And I mentioned that just because to sort of wrap up this kind of talk about the meaning of life. Jake's uh, family is really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're actually lovely in case they're listening. <laughs> well, the, the question I was going with was early in life, or, or you often hear people say this, you say, oh, what's the meaning of life? And people will say, well, to be happy. And I feel like that doesn't necessarily vibe with sort of more serious philosophical discussion about the meaning of life. But I, I just wanted to ask you what you think about happiness's place in the meaning of life or what makes life meaningful. And anticipating your answer, that will be a nice way to wrap yeah. this. And Particularly the in the section. context that you, given some decision path, actually highlighted happiness and meaningful as two different paths. Yeah. I think is the point you're pointing. At. Exactly. Yeah. So like, what, what's the right thing to do? Spend time with family or friends? <laughs> I'm not sure that was me. And I, I, that sounds like I would be hesitant to diss my family that way, but it's, um, <laughs> it, 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 they do live in Hull I, though. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Exactly. If you want to be happy, don't go to Hull. That's, is that the, that's the, um, that's the complete, the, quote. <laughs> that's the, the final punchline. I mean, I do think that the, this distinction between personal happiness and trying to engage with people in the way you should and treat yourself the way you should is key to guiding one's life. I do. I think there's two things to say about it. One is that unlike certain ancient Greek philosophers who say this is the model, like you, every, mm. the, the ideal life is Greek statesman or the ideal life is be a philosopher. I think we should acknowledge that there's a plurality of ways to live a good enough life. But I, I do think trying to live well and engage with reality in the way you should is the primary focus. And then happiness is, fingers crossed, a kind of side effect of that, but it's not the the direct object. So that's not exactly prescriptive about the uh, family versus friends question, but it is a framework for thinking about it that that prioritizes engaging with reality and trying to respond to it properly ra rather than aiming at happiness and treats happiness as a kind of secondary thing. Happiness as a byproduct is quite an interesting conclusion of that because you're right. Otherwise, it can seem if you're, if you're sort of aiming for happiness that it's, it's perhaps a little bit elusive. It's like trying to catch water, right? If you're aiming for it, you sort of miss it. But if you're focusing on other things, perhaps you... never like to see Jake jumping into a pool. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> just, yeah, you know what I mean with that, with that sort of metaphor? Like it's maybe... maybe <laughs> I've never seen you struggling to catch water. That's such a weird analogy. Yeah, catch, you know, hold water in your hands and it sort of slips through your fingers is, is uh, perhaps there's a better analogy I can give. Do you see what I mean? It's like one of those things where if you... 
if you aim for it, you miss it. But if you whereas sort of, if you happen to have spades for hands, but <laughs> <laughs> if you're sort of aiming for something tangential, you maybe yeah. Uh, no, do, no. do you agree with that anyway? Yeah, no. This is this is a kind of argument that gets called the, the paradox of egoism that goes back to John Stuart Mill and and Bishop Butler in the kind of Western philosophical tradition that the sources of happiness ultimately are things you care about. Uh, mm -hmm. It could be hobbies, it could be other people, it could be justice, but you have to care about something other than yourself. So if what you're focused on is just your own happiness, you're in trouble because you mm. don't have the investment in things that generates happiness. So th that's why there's this sense of self-undermining, that if you're exclusively invested in yourself, you're going to struggle to achieve a meaningful life and therefore struggle to achieve the happiness that is essentially a kind of byproduct of that. Mm. Okay. Well, Kieran, thank you so much. We will be back next episode with a further discussion on sort of meaning and, and in particular focusing on justice as a, as a theme yes. topic there. And we'll have to keep it a little tighter. It might be that we even split it into three because it, the first one ran over a bit. But perfect. Guys, thank you very much. Look out for part two coming soon. And Kieran, thank you very much. Really appreciate having you on. Well, I mean, this is weird because we're going to now sit with him on the call. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have to pretend like we've gone away and come yeah. back a week later. Okay. Goodbye. Uh, we need to yeah. <laughs> it's great to talk to you.